Hear that? That's nothing. Which is what I, as a speaker at today's conference, have for you all. Ah! Ian, Ian, wake up. I have nothing. Nada. Zip. Zilch. Zippo. Uh, Ian, uh, I think you're dreaming, man. I'm not dreaming, man. I'm having a nightmare. A nightmare? Yeah, I can't. Oh, I gotta, I gotta give a presentation. Well, it does sound like a nightmare. Don't worry, man. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about how to give a talk at a conference. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. I think the most important thing is to assess your audience. There's some misunderstandings about our conference, which is DCBKK, the one we throw every October in Bangkok. It's a gathering of location-independent entrepreneurs. There's a lot of misunderstandings about who the audience is. And this is actually a big problem if you're going to come in and be a speaker. There's so many people walk up to me and they say, I thought this conference was a bunch of digital nomads. Or I, I thought that this conference was a, a bunch of people building small AdSense websites. It's probably because when you just described it for me, that's what you said. A bunch of location-independent entrepreneurs descending on Bangkok. So how do you say it better? <laughs> it's a good question. I think one of the things that we realized about our conference is, well, there's a few things. Around 60% of the people that come to the conference are actually from the U.S., and a lot of them live there almost full time. I think why we say digital nomad or location independent entrepreneur is because they have the choice to be in yeah. the US. It's like people building internet centric businesses, optimizing for a multitude of currencies, and they have an abundance mindset, and they're pretty fun. So basically, I think the reason why we have a hard time explaining it is because it takes so long. It's basically <laughs> 30 seconds to a minute. <laughs> All right, so you've been asked to speak at a conference, which I guess we could use your most recent experience as a proxy, where I essentially asked you to speak at the conference because I didn't want to speak at the conference. It's really hard. Yeah, and so it's a difficult situation to be in because a lot of times you have a choice about whether or not you speak at a conference. In this case, I actually didn't have a choice. Maybe we could give the example of the time Rob Walling, the founder of MicroConf, in 2013, he approached us and said, would you guys be willing to fly to Prague and talk to a bunch of software developers about a business-related topic. And the issue there is we don't know that audience, we don't know what those people want, and we don't know why they want to hear from a couple of bozos who make cat furniture. Do you want to take me back to that thought process and like how you determined the topic that would be relevant for them? Well, first of all, we never get asked to speak at conferences, despite putting on conferences and speaking at our own conference. We've hosted like over 10 conferences. Well attended. Never get the invite. So this time we got the invite and <laughs> there was no way that we were going to not go to that conference. No way. I don't care where it is. I'm going. It helped that it was Rob and Mike's conference, MicroConf, that we knew them through their podcast startups for the rest of us. So I felt like I knew them, but I didn't necessarily felt like I knew their audience. But I did know that their audience was primarily technical people. And so I think the conclusion that we came to when we're thinking about what to do our talk on is, 
what would these people benefit from that we have to offer that they might not know about? And so we kicked around a couple ideas. Marketing was at the top of the list. One of the things that we were really passionate about at that time in our business was building teams. And I think we probably asked Rob and Mike, like what stage of the business a lot of these people were in and they told us. And it turns out that a lot of them were interested in building teams. So that's what we did our talk on. But I think what's important there is trying to figure out the demographic of the audience that you're going to be talking to and speaking to them on something that will be interesting. And it's also tough, too, because I remember at the time, I think the Europe MicroConf event, it was a lot of sort of solo developers building software products. And they might not have wanted to hear from some guys that had 15 employees in a warehouse in Temecula. I got a question for you. What makes a good talk? Before we do that, you gave a talk just a few days ago. It's fresh in your mind. The scar's still there. Tell us how to go. The rating didn't come in yet. Will you let me read the rating on the show? Absolutely, yeah. We've asked everybody for feedback. You will be judged. Big props, man. I don't think I could put myself in that position. So part of the conference experience and part of our process is sending out a survey at the end of the conference where we ask our attendees what they thought, and then we also ask our speakers what they thought. So that's always an exciting time for us because we get good, honest feedback, I think, on these events. In terms of speaking, I think we have the luxury of, because we throw conferences, we have the luxury of seeing a lot of speakers. Yeah. We have the luxury of seeing how they prepare and the thought process and actually helping them to prepare. I think it's fair to say that we're like speaker coaches. We've probably coached over 100 speakers, yet we still don't get invited to conferences. It's insane. Correct. And I don't ever follow my own advice. This is the point that I'm getting at, (laughs) is that I've seen a lot of talks and it's always hard when you have to implement that into your own talk. And so I think that that's the struggle. I want to go back now to about three weeks ago when I started to think about the talk that I was going to give. Okay. What's the title? So the title was 10 Ways to... Gosh, I don't even remember. This is how important titles are. It doesn't matter. What was important was the subject matter. The subject matter was how to sell your business or things you should be considering when you're thinking about selling your business. Okay. Because that's the process that we just went through. So that is also fresh in my mind. And it's something that's on a lot of people in our community's minds. They've been building businesses for the last couple of years. And the option to sell is becoming available or they're setting themselves up for that to become an option in the future. So this is the reason I picked the topic. Well, and because let's face it, you don't have anything else to talk about. It's the only thing you've done in the past year. That was the joke. If we didn't sell the business by the time the conference came around, I was going to have absolutely nothing to talk about. Yeah. So thank goodness (laughs) that that happened. (laughs) But what I wanted to do was take you back to three weeks ago when I started to think about this talk. One of the things I remembered is to give a good talk, I think for me and my process, it takes about 40 hours. When you think about it, a big ask of your speakers that are coming into your conference to dedicate that much time. I've seen people do it in less and maybe it's just because I'm an amateur, but I'll lay out my process and I think you'll see why it takes me 40 hours. So the first thing I do is just basically brain dump into a Word document. It can be anywhere from one page to 20 pages. And then what I'll do from there is kind of distill my ideas and then I'll put them into slides. Is this like an outline? Or are you just like writing paragraphs? It's just writing paragraphs, basically. Trying to figure out good stories. It's kind of a mix of actionable advice and also good stories, because I think good stories are what makes a great talk. So I'll write this whole document out, and then I'll parse it, and then I'll get it onto some slides. It generally looks like bullet points on the slides. Ooh. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. You don't like the bullet points, do you? Nobody likes the bullet points. In fact, I don't see any reason to put more than one or two words on any slide ever. 
Except if you're quoting Thomas Jefferson or something. I'll consider it for next year when you do your presentation. <laughs> I'll consider it. So I get all the bullet points onto the slides, and then I start to really formulate my ideas. And one of the things that I did this year, well, basically now I'm using Google Slides. The cool thing that I like about that is that you can have your slides, and then you can also have notes. They do that in every major. Not in PowerPoint, man. I come from Microsoft 2006. They don't have that. <laughs> Anyways, hear me out. This is part of my process. So I put the notes into the notes section, but ultimately I don't end up using those notes. So game day, I'm up on stage. I'm not really reading my slides at all. I've got it all memorized. This is all part of the process to get it all memorized. Here's the crazy part though that really stumped me when I started to pull together my first few talks is how do you translate a story into a slide deck? You know what I mean? Pictures. (laughs) <laughs> but what pictures do you put up there? You know what I mean? What titles? What are the key turning points? It feels like there's these key turning points that happen when the slides go. The whole structure of the thing to me was always really confusing. I think you lead with the punchline a lot during the presentation. So you'll have a photo that kind of illustrates your point. You'll lead with the punchline and then you'll tell a story. Yeah. That way they can look out for what the value is. So you can say, look, here's the big thing that we're going to talk about. Here's why you should listen to me. I sold a business. And here's the things that you can expect to take away if you listen. So look for these things. For me, most successful talks have this element of a high-level concept that's then illustrated by a case study or an anecdote or vice versa. Like you start with a story and then you distill it down into a concept. So like this illustrates this framework, you know, like Rob Walling's stair-step approach is a good example where you say, this is the characteristics of a phase one business or tell the story of a business that's in phase one. So for those of you who don't know, the stair-step approach is just a framework that he was using to describe how you can grow from a small to a large business. It's not interesting to anybody to just go up there and say, here's a phase one business, here's a phase two business, here's a phase three business. The test is coming on Tuesday, you know? And it's very hard to just go up there and tell a story. I mean, imagine if you just went up there and said, in 2006, I started a business, and then in 2007, I started this business, and then, you know, I took some time off because I want to go on a vacation. And then, you know, it's like, just story doesn't work either. Yeah. So there's got to be this kind of like flip-flop back and forth. I also like another sort of flip-flop. When you show people like what life was like before a solution and what it was like after a solution. So you can say like, here's my advice. Imagine like what you know my life was like before I understood this information. And now that I do understand this information, like here's what it looks like. Preparing for these talks, it's the same as a lot of things. Unless you're a professional, you don't get a lot of practice. And when you go look for examples, you look at the top. And that's not necessarily how your first presentation is going to go. Right. Like don't type ted.com into the computer. That's not the way to go. Yeah. Because what I learned pretty early on is to pull off basically a performance is a lot different than pulling off a talk. And so people that can pull off performances and be interesting and give actionable advice, that's like the top. That's a professional level. Those are the people that are getting asked to speak at conferences. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. So now I know what the problem is. Baseline is giving people good actionable information. I think if you don't have any frame of reference for how to give a talk, you've never done a talk before, try your best to make it interesting. But if all you can do is teach someone something, you'll be okay. At the end of the day, I feel it comes back down to the first thing you said, which is 40 hours of work. It's not rocket science. Just work a little harder. Warp me to the moment when you're walking up on the stage. Do you feel prepared? Are you nervous? How's it different than the walkthrough? Like, What can people expect if they're all of a sudden standing in front of 200 people? People have all different kinds of tricks to calm their nerves, to picture their mom in the audience, all these kinds of tricks. Picture their mom in the audience? Yeah, yeah. I heard that from someone this year, actually. Really? Yeah. They pictured themselves. Is she in her underwear? No. 
Definitely not in her underwear. That joke was just sitting. I mean, you have to take it. The reason I think they pictured their mom was because it was a very calming idea, and moms would never give you hell about anything you ever said, right? And so it's like you can do no wrong. She would lie straight to your face about the quality of your speech. You did great. You did great. <laughs> so when you get on stage, I think depending on the size of the audience, it can be a very different experience. You know, talking to twenty people, and especially people that you know. So I think the advantage at our conference for a lot of these speakers is that they actually know most of the people in the audience or they've maybe met them. I'll tell you the biggest difference. Talking to 20 people is an awesome experience. Talking to 200 people is not a particularly awesome experience, generally speaking. (laughs) It's really hard, number one. And number two, your brain does not function at all, which is why the preparation time is important. Like if you have any kind of neuroplasticity up there, like wit, judgment, you know, like improvisation skills. Wow, you are on a whole nother level because for me, it's just like, it's complete lizard brain. Here's the difference is that you get no feedback from 200 people. I mean, you'll tell a joke and you'll think it's the funniest joke ever and it might be, in the context of 20 people, there's a social commitment that you kind of have to laugh sometimes. You're like, oh, this guy really went out on a limb here. I'm going to laugh for him because it would be totally awkward. But when you're on stage and there's 200 people, that social commitment completely disappears. <laughs> you're on your own. I'm Without a doubt, in any field of 200 that's recovering from some sort of illness or hangover, and they're sort of doing this crust face you know and if you catch that person yeah then that's the only thing that you'll be thinking of right so you're looking at this person they look super bored and you just think like this is the most boring presentation ever. you could catch them on a yawn they could be right. the only one yawning but that's what you're looking at so the point here is that you have to know your stuff don't go up there with like a topic on your slide and like you're going to kind of discuss some stuff that you do that would be a disaster. So in my presentation, the stories, the jokes, everything's planned out. And I've seen people bomb like this with the sense that they could go in front of a large audience and feel it out. There's this dynamic that happens like there's a turning point like around 80 people in my experience that you can't feel out an audience. Like, yeah, like you might know if they like didn't get the joke or got the joke. The energy is going to be completely different. In a 200 person audience, the energy is always just pressure pressure right. on you whereas with 80 people you can kind of feel the energy a little bit more and say like would you guys all mind if i focus a little bit more on x topic it's almost like you can kind of dip into the audience and have an interaction and see some nods and like yeah you know but 200 people it's like whoa you're performing keep dancing that's not a conversation i think arena comedy now that we're thinking about it and talking about it i think arena comedy and underground seller comedy they kind of share that same dynamic you know, when you see a comic downstairs, low in a basement, it's a different kind of comedy show than... Yeah, the audience feels like they can chuck some drinks at them. And... Right, exactly. Heckle, <laughs> a lot easier. How do you deal with your nerves? I'm not going to say you're the calmest guy I ever met. Nerves are a big deal, man, for me. And I think no matter how many times I do it, I always get a little bit nervous. And sometimes I get a lot nervous. Like this year in the middle of my talk, I thought I was going to have a medical emergency for some reason. I have to tell the anecdote because I was sitting there and your talk was really good. I would rate it. Not bad. Yeah, 86%. I can't dive that well. I'll take it. (laughs) And there was this moment sort of at minute 20, somewhere around there, where I kind of saw like a little bit of a hyperventilate come on. Really? Yeah, and I looked down to the front row where the guy in charge of our content and speakers, Jeff Picaro, was sitting. And I sort of looked. I wonder what Jeff's thinking right now. 
I looked back up at Ian, and I saw you just like pull it back in. Were you like conscious of that, or you just? I was definitely conscious of it. Yeah, I don't know why that happened. It's interesting that you could tell. I asked a bunch of other people, and they couldn't tell. So I think it's just we hang out too much, and yeah, you picked up on it. <laughs> we need to do something about that. But it was cool because you know I was talking a little bit about how that anxiety will keep you away from being able to think. You missed a critical point on one of your slides to keep the story going, and two slides later, you like pause and you're like. I just want to mention something. And you came back to it and I was like, whoa, he's got it now. So that was that was pretty advanced stuff. Yeah, and I think in terms of preparation, that's where it pays off because I think that you have moments like this and I've had moments like that in the past. So part of this for me is practicing in front of other people. I probably gave the talk five or six times before I did it on stage. And if you practice and you memorize, you can get through moments like that much easier. And I think everybody has them. It's this weird feeling, at least for me, for other people it might be different, but it's basically you go into fight or flight mode. You are in a vulnerable position and for some reason you feel like there's a threat basically and the threat is that all these people in the audience aren't going to like my talk or they're not resonating to what i'm saying right now you're wasting everybody's time like the compound time wastage and the truth behind it is if that's the case that's just going to be the case and you got to finish your talk and get off the stage and deal with it later it's too late by the time you're up there so just keep rolling through whatever you're doing So Dan, at this point, you've seen hundreds of presentations at your own conference because you don't get invited to other conferences. Correct. At your conference, what makes a good slide? I don't see any point in bullet points. Doesn't mean I don't use them. They're not for the audience. They're for the speaker, right? There's no audience that's like, please list this out in bullet point fashion so I can read over your shoulder while I'm supposed to be looking at you talking to me. Because that's what happens is you have a bunch of bullet points and instead of listening to you, especially if they come up all at one time, the audience just reads those. Yes. So at minimum, if you're going to do bullet points, please have them animate out in paragraph form, which is, you know, you click one line, click second line. Do you like when they fly in, like whoosh, and make that noise? Is that a good effect? <laughs> sure. I mean... If you're going to have bullet points, you're already down that road. Have them fly in. But the best speakers put stunning, evocative imagery on their slides or hilarious cat pictures. It doesn't matter. Just that it sets a tone. It can remind you where you are, can like sort of act as an anchor. To me, what you want is to sort of set a tone with your slide and then have the audience come back to connect with you. So if you have like all kinds of information and links, further reading suggestions and things on your slides, you know, the best practice for that is at the end of your talk, put up a slide with a quick link to all the resources. And this is a great way to convert the people that were passionate about your message. They can go to bit.ly slash that conference. You know, you put up a special link for that and then you can have all kinds of contact information, your slides, reading list. People appreciate that. I think that's super helpful. And the idea here is basically that you give people all the information in some kind of storytelling fashion or some kind of way that makes sense for a presentation. And then they can go and look at all the resources that you mentioned Yeah. later. It's like, you don't have to take notes anymore because we have this link. There's never been a slide of bullet points that wouldn't be better if it were either a real photo or a real screenshot. And the good news about both is that they remind you equally well. You know, if you're going to be dueling out advice about, you know, how to optimize your bank account or whatever, don't have like five bullet points about what to do at your bank account. Like put a picture of a real bank account up on the screen 
And then your next slide can be a close-up shot of the part that you're talking about. Like, and this actually baffles me about conference speakers because this is such an easy thing to do. It's just provide imagery rather than text. And that imagery can remind you equally well. So if I had to give one piece of advice to conference speakers, it would be that. Use imagery to both know where you're at in your talk and to prompt you, but also to like make it a more engaging talk for your audience. Now, to defend speakers, because I just got through this, I think the reason why people use bullet points and there's often a lot of text on the slides is because they're actually reading from them. Yeah. It doesn't make for the best presentation because you just think, well, if you just handed this out, I could read it on my own time. What are you here for? And if you wander to the wrong side of the stage, you actually have to turn around. So they're staring at your back while you're reading your slide. This happens at every conference I've ever been to. I think it's a product of not preparing. One other question I have for you. As someone that went to design school and prides myself on good design and being around nicely designed products and graphic design that's done nicely, when I look at my slides, I just have a big thrrr. Like, I cannot <laughs> figure out how to make them look good. So does it matter if they look good? No, I don't think so. It doesn't matter at all. It's nice if you can do it. And nowadays, it's easier than ever. You can go online and download free slide libraries that are designed by like superhuman geniuses. And you don't need your own designer or anything like that. You can just import it into your whatever software you're using and off you go. Easy peasy. So let's talk then about the interactions because generally speaking, there is an interactive portion to talks, a Q&A. And, and yeah, the nightmare scenario is that it's just crickets. Like everyone's like, well, I, you know, I've got no questions. Did you Thank tell you. me all the stuff? Right. You were so proficient that there are no questions. A lot of people, myself included, maybe before I started speaking, like I thought I was going to be Tony Robbins when I first got up there. Right. So it's like, how y'all feeling? And you, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Just like nobody's like, we're at a conference, man. This, this is a concert, conference, concert. You listen to the wrong <laughs> podcast when you're preparing for this. Sometimes there's no interaction back and forth from the audience. Like we were talking about before, it's just stone-faced. I've been to talks where people were just like, we're good. We're, we're good. We're good. <laughs> but at the end of the talk, a lot of times that there is a portion for Q&A at our events are. And so what about the nightmare of no one asking a question like you said? Does it make sense to inject your own question? Does it make sense to just slow clap your way off the stage? I have a hack for this. I would plant two questions in the audience before every talk that I give. I would also ask yourself, what are the nightmare questions that you could receive just to ensure that you know how you want to handle those things. Like in particular, when you're thinking about your boundaries, you know, and how you want to handle those. I think if you're clear about them, you know, people will respect them. You know, for example, if you don't want to divulge, you know, how much money you made on certain, I think it makes sense to sort of get out in front of that stuff on the presentation too. You know, I think people are respectful of you wanting to keep certain things private just so long as you're upfront about it and that you're not sort of ripping off the audience by like dangling that information in front of their faces and then not giving it to them. You didn't plant any questions in the audience because you have an auto plant sitting on the side of the stage. Yes, thank you. That's you. So you have the backup plan. I knew enough people that would save me from social embarrassment. Yeah, if things are dark hour when I'm walking back, I'll like turn around and ask you a question about or something. any of the other speakers, right? So I think that there was a moment during the conference when there wasn't a bunch of questions, and you started asking questions, which I think is really good from an MC's point of view to keep the audience excited because it's not necessarily that no one. Has any questions it could be like we said like this is so high level that i didn't understand a lot of it or yeah sometimes it's a lot to process and so when you start getting the juices going then other people start to have questions or get a little bit more confidence and it's interesting that sometimes the more authoritative speeches like people who really like this is it close the book 
done deal, go do it. And then everybody's like, and so you get this vibe. Sometimes that sort of speaker could give a vibe that they might not be the best person you want to hear an answer from until they start to answer things and then they show you know, their attitude about that. One idea, if there aren't any questions for you and there's no planted questions, you're on stage. So there's an opportunity here. <laughs> and it's not to tell bad jokes. If other interesting things have happened at the conference to you or if some other speaker said something that was interesting, you have an opportunity to comment on it or to relate it back to your presentation. So that's one way to fill the awkward silence. I think one of the reasons why it's so hard to get great speakers at conferences is that it's extremely expensive to speak at a conference. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. You just mentioned that it took you 40 hours to make your talk. I mean, yeah. I guess the question is, what would make it worth it? Well, if I had the room that you had in in the Conrad Hotel here in Bangkok, that would certainly make it worth it. So just a little story about how this room thing went down. So Alex, our event coordinator, has been working very hard with me to turn a profit on these events because they haven't been profitable the last couple of years. And so Alex and I sat down about nine months ago. We said, this is the year. We're going to do it. And you guys identified me as a problem area on the profit <laughs> and loss sheet. <laughs> we're going to talk about the room and then we're going to talk about a couple other things real quick. This is well worth everybody's time, okay? If you have someone like Dan in your organization... This is how you deal with it. So when I showed up to the hotel and I came to my room, it was the same room that I was in last year. It's very nice. It's got a little couch, a chair, a bathtub, a large bed, plenty of room to do whatever you could possibly want to do in a hotel. Came downstairs. I was talking to Alex. And then I called you. I said, I'm coming up. Where are you? We got to meet. We got to talk about some things. And you said, oh, I'm up in room, whatever. And I said, is it nice? And you said, don't be mad. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, don't be mad. All right. I get up to your room, and it's a full-blown apartment. (laughs) And what was your justification for wanting such a big, expensive room at the conference? Well, I thought it would be nice to record some podcasts up there, you know, pull some people in, record some interesting stories, publish them to the world, and grow the movement. So how many podcasts did we record in that room? We recorded a podcast. Okay. How many parties did we have in your room? A couple. We had a lot of parties in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best part of going to conferences. And you know, that dovetails into my advice on how to get speakers. You know, a lot of what motivates speakers is actually fun. These things are really, really fun. If you want to attract talent to your event, you got to have it be fun. And you might as well get the suite. You might as well get the terrace suite, throw a couple parties, get a reputation for having a good time, bring in the big speakers next year. You don't know how these things could pay off in the future. The post-justification is always my favorite. Why we should get this room. I think it's worth mentioning that we snuck a lot of booze up to the room as well. Because you don't want to buy it from the room service. This is obvious. This is a good way to reduce your expenses. Now, we didn't sneak a bunch. Alex snuck a bunch of booze. You're going to implicate him on the show like that? Here's the other story that everybody needs to know about you. (laughs) Last year... Our biggest expense at the hotel was your room service bill. Yeah. (laughs) So we'll be preparing for these events. And Dan just thinks there's so much going on that we have to order food to the room right now. We have to work on this. I can't possibly find five minutes to go downstairs to get a bottle of water. I'm just going to take it out of the fridge. So last year, I think it was around $4,000 in laundry and food that came out of your room. When you're hearing it now, it sounds ridiculous, right? I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to honor this criticism by defending myself on this show. Could you just, let me just finish here. Can you imagine we're all adults, right? But somehow we find everyone treating you like a child and going out and buying booze so you won't take it for the minibar because you just can't be helped. One of my favorite jokes from the weekend, and I definitely appreciate you trying to control your expenses. This sounds like some terrible mid-level musician behind the music (laughs) is about to just, this is the end. 
that's what that sounds like. So back to the time investment and what makes it worth it for people to come to this conference or any conference. I think what you said is true, is fun. But part of that is knowing who's going to be there and what kind of fun you're going to have. So it's really important that like at the beginning of the show, you can explain exactly what your conference is about and why you might want to come as a speaker. Our conference, we actually don't pay people to come yet to our conference because we've just figured out how to keep you out of the mini bar. So we've got a little bit of money next year to maybe do that. <laughs> but for us in the past, we haven't been able to pay people because we haven't been able to afford it. So it's been about the fun. It's been about the connections. Often conference organizers will go the opposite way and they'll throw it in a super convenient, like low cost area so that it's not that expensive. We'd sort of do the opposite like come the whole way around the world and hang out for a week because it's going to be fun it's worth the time investment it's sort of like a summit or an annual gathering for people but well, one of the attendees came to me and he said that he changed his year-end reckoning till october instead of december so that every year he sets himself goals and sees if he can make them before he returns to all his peers and shares his progress i thought that was pretty cool a couple things i just want to say about dcpkk i gotta say that this is relevant for speakers because I've had so many attendees come up to me. You know, we take the time with our speakers to get on the phone with them and explain to them who our audience is, what's been successful in the past. I mean, we send them videos of this works. We can help draw that out of you if you're willing to work with us. Not a lot of conference organizers will do that, okay? A lot of times they'll say, here's a stage, go, we'll put you up. It's very easy to make assumptions about what that audience is going to be. A handful of people that came to our conference made assumptions as well. Like People thought that it was going to be a bunch of like backpacking digital nomads. It's not the vibe at all. Of course, there are some people like that, but I just wanted to mention on the show for the listeners, interested in attending one of our conferences someday that it's like 60% people that are based in the continental United States. Probably about 60% of people have like a home, like a home base that they live in. Of course, they have tons of location and time flexibility, but these are serious business people that are using the internet. It's so difficult to describe, but it's sort of these businesses that foster a sense of abundance. You feel that in the room because it's not like an arbitrage trading business or like you're taking stuff out of the ground and selling it on a market. And so you got to keep other people away from that ground. It's like competitors can sit across the table and swap notes and both grow, grow their businesses. So people like help each other out. I think that that's one of the unique elements of our conference. Yeah. I mean, we're thinking about having childcare next year. So it's definitely not a bunch of digital nomads at this conference. The other thing that I want to mention is the meetups that were circling around this conference or leading up to this conference. We threw a meetup. It was the CEO meetup. And just to give you an idea of the caliber of people, I thought maybe 10 or 15 people might show up. This is for people with upper six-figure, mostly seven-figure businesses would show up. 60 people showed up to that meetup. So there are a lot of high-level people doing interesting things at the conference. One other thing though, Dan, just from a organizer's perspective, point of view, I think it's very hard to throw a compelling conference, but it is becoming easier as we've had members and conference attendees throwing their own mini conferences before the events. And it's actually become one of the coolest parts about this conference, I think. Yeah, the traditional conference, what they do is they go out and get a big name and they sell the tickets based on that big name. And then at the conference, they're compelled to put the big name up on the stage and then stack a bunch of people in the room in front of them. The problem with this is that there's so much 
potential for disappointment on all ends, you know? And I think that's one of the coolest things you can do as a conference organizer is you can give your attendees a chance to provide value. They want to, right? They want to share their knowledge with other people and people want to learn. So it's a great way to do that. Yeah, and it's also a way, in the context of what we're talking about today, it's also a way to get experienced as a speaker without speaking at the conference. So what our members do is they'll throw events during the week leading up to the conference. So it'll be travel hacking and they'll give a presentation on travel hacking. You just got experience speaking at the travel hacking conference. And the other thing that you just did was you put yourself in front of probably about 50 people. So now there's 50 people that can identify you at the conference. So there's a lot of benefits to us as an organizer having these kind of satellite events, but also to you as the attendee. I would 100% do this if I was attending a conference. If Rob and Mike and ever invited us back, they haven't invited us back. So there's obviously something wrong with what we've done. (laughs) But if they did invite us back, it would make a lot of sense for us Say that we weren't speakers and that we bought a ticket. And, you know, next year they're probably going to do a microconf in Barcelona, which would be a great event to go to. And if I bought a ticket there... It'd be a great event for us to go to and speak at. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, I think it would make a lot of sense for us to throw a meetup while we're there, you know, like put a message up to everybody saying, you know, we're going to throw a little dinner, share some knowledge about selling a business. If anybody wants to come by, you know, we'll talk for 20 minutes and then chat. I think that'd be cool. So in the future, Dan, we will be bringing our audience some of the interviews from attendees that came to this conference. And there's a reason for that. And that's the lady that's sitting next to us right now, Jane, that's making me feel very (laughs) self-conscious about my podcasting (laughs) skills. This is the first episode that she's helped us out with. She's going to help us out with many more. And hopefully, we're not going to miss shows in the future. We're going to have more interesting guests. We're going to hone our skills. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I'm excited. I really am. I'm like, this is fantastic. And one of the most terrible things about this conference, there's so many great things about this conference, but the biggest tragedy is that every year we come to the thing and afterwards it's me and you jawing about this apparently amazing thing that happened that no one gets to hear about. So this year we're actually going to put some of those interviews on the show and I'm excited about that. Real quick before we go. What are your travel plans? Tell us where you're going next. I'm headed back to Austin for probably a couple months until I see you in... Well, I was planning actually to go to Mexico early next year, but you're talking about throwing on some Lycra and doing a ride out in Spain. So I'm thinking about trying to lose these 10 pounds that I gained at the conference. (laughs) I mean, I just can't be helped around the buffet. I just can't be helped. It doesn't matter how much gym time or anything like that. I'm getting the scones and worse off. I'm doing a lot worse than the scones. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.